for exceptionally meritorious and distinguished services. She served with exceptional ability as Chief Operator in the Signal Corps Exchange at General Headquarters, American Expeditionary Forces, and later in a similar capacity at First Army Headquarters. By untiring devotion to her exacting duties under trying conditions, she did much to assure the success of the telephone service during the operations of the First Army against the San Miguel Salient and the operations to the north of Verdun. Welcome to American Epistles, the story of our country, one letter at a time. I'm your host, Susan Stevenson. American Epistles explores our history through the letters, journals, and diaries of ordinary Americans. During my research on women who provided welfare services during World War I, I frequently came across those who served in the armed forces. Their numbers were much smaller than those of the women I talked about in the series, but their significance was great. Today's mini-episode is about the women who served in the U.S. Army Signal Corps operating the telephone switchboards for the AEF. The first U.S. patent for the telephone was awarded to Alexander Graham Bell in 1876. The first phone network in Paris was installed for the 1878 Expo Universelle. By World War I, the telephone had proven itself to be a faster and more secure method of communication than the radio and telegraph that preceded it. In those days, telephone communications relied on operators. The caller spoke into the speaker tube of what was called a candlestick phone and told the operator to whom he wanted to speak. Then the operator manually connected the call. For a long-distance call, the operator would talk to another operator and another until the call was connected across multiple lines. One of the challenges that the American military faced in France was communicating over a telephone system that had suffered the effects of three years of war. Naturally, its operators spoke French, another challenge for the monolingual American soldiers. Calls could be delayed by as much as two hours or cut off abruptly, and miscommunications, which can and do happen among speakers of the same language, were frequent and potentially catastrophic. So, the Americans installed their own equipment. Linemen, truck drivers, and other employees of the Bell Telephone Company built a replacement for part of the French-owned system. That helped to resolve the infrastructure problem. The male recruits who were given the job of operator took an average of 60 seconds to connect calls. But the professional operators back home, who were predominantly women, could do the job in 10 seconds and the language barrier remained an issue. The American soldiers couldn't speak French, which was still important for connecting calls to French operators, nor could the local French operators speak English. General John J. Pershing therefore requested that French-speaking American women be brought to France to operate the Army's switchboards. In a November cable to the War Department, he wrote, quote, on account of the great difficulty of obtaining properly qualified men, request organization and dispatch to France, a force of women telephone operators, all speaking French and English equally well. Newspapers advertised that the women would be, quote, full-fledged soldiers under the Articles of War 
and would, quote, do as much to help win the war as the men in khaki who go, quote, over the top. 7,000 responded to the November 1917 call to serve with the Women's Telephone Unit of the Army Signal Corps. Of the applicants who were sufficiently fluent in French, had no male relatives overseas, and no German connections, 100 were selected for the first contingent. They were the first women to serve in the Army in non-medical roles. The American Telephone and Telegraph Company, later known simply as AT&T, put the women through intensive training, and the first group boarded the Celtic in March 1918. America called them, and the 190 women who would eventually join them, Hello Girls. Grace Banker from New Jersey was a Barnard College graduate with a double major in French and history. She was on board the Celtic and recalled the following about that journey. The first group of signal girls had come from all over the United States and Canada. Some, like myself, were college girls. Some came from public schools and some from private schools. All spoke French, but almost none had any telephone experience until they were trained for the overseas service by the telephone company. Their ages ranged from 19 to 35. There was only one of the latter. I had always heard that old people were set in their ways, and it was with some misgivings that I discovered I had someone so aged in my care. I was still so young. March 6, sailing at last. Thirty-three signal girls in the trim navy blue uniform and smart overseas cap prescribed by the Army War College at Washington. I was so proud of them. I was also very conscious of my heavy responsibilities. I had been put in charge of the unit. Banker was 25 at the time of the voyage. Some of the Hello Girls accounts expressed great pride and satisfaction at doing a job that was so critical to the success of offensive like San Miguel and Argonne Muse. Banker recalled, I doubt if anyone else could picture how terrific the work was just before a drive started. Everybody worked hard, yet no one seemed to complain. The excitement carried us along. The night before the San Miguel drive opened, I sent two of the girls home in the early evening, and the last three at 10.30 p.m. I stayed on with the signal boys, who were going to spell us off for a few hours. At 11.30 p.m., I started home. In bed by midnight, I was awakened about 1.30 a.m. by the low roar of guns. Soon after 2 a.m., I was back in the office with the girls who had left on the earlier shift the night before. We took over the boards. Most of the Signal Corps officers, Colonel Hitt, Captain Keller, Lieutenants Liner and Burgess, were still there at five that morning. No one could tell what might happen next. It was like an exciting game. I couldn't leave. But at 9.30 that night, Captain Keller pushed me out of the office and I went home. During the battle, ten operators were ordered to leave their switchboards when the building they were in caught fire. Believing that the order was based on their gender, they continued their work until they were threatened with court-martials. They complied with the order and returned to the building an hour after the fire was put out. By this point in the war, the Army used only women for the telephone exchanges closest to the front line in rotating 12-hour shifts. Male soldiers worked 8-hour overnight shifts in the rear 
where there was less telephone traffic. In Berthy Hunt's words, it was, quote, most thrilling to sit at that board and feel the importance of it. At first, it gave me a sort of gone feeling, for the fear the connection would not be made in time, and a few seconds would be lost. She also recalled, At first, we had charge of the operating boards only. You know with our advanced units, there were two types of board. That used for the ordinary routine of local and long-distance calls, in regard to supplies, transportations, etc., and that which carried all the messages between the fighting units and the commanding officers directing their movements. Every order for an infantry advance, a barrage preparatory to the taking of a new objective, and, in fact, every troop movement came of these fighting lines, as we called them. These wires connected to the front, up with the generals, and made it possible for the latter to know exactly what was going on at any moment and to direct operations accordingly. The Hello Girls handled as many as 150,000 calls per day, which went between the military command, supply depot, and the trenches. Not only did they operate the phones, but the women also provided translation between French and American officers. The calls communicated troop movements and orders to fire, cease fire, advance, or retreat. They were often in code. The code for tool was podunk one day, or wabash the next. For Ligny, it was waterfall. The codes could not be written down and had to be memorized for security reasons. In addition to French and English, Grace Banker said the operators also had to understand American doughboy French. Benoity Vox, for example, was the average American soldier's way of pronouncing the town Benoit Vaux. On May 22, 1919, the Army gave Banker its highest honor, the Distinguished Service Medal, for her service. The citation that went with the medal was read at the beginning of the episode. Out of 16,000 eligible Signal Corps officers, only 18 received this honor. Some of the operators continued their service in France for up to a year after the armistice. Merle Egan, from Montana, led the switchboard for the Versailles Conference. Egan also led the fight for the women to be recognized as veterans after they'd completed their service. After the war, the Army informed the operators, who'd been sworn in and issued dog tags and uniforms bearing Army Signal Corps insignia, as well as badges of rank and function, that they were actually civilian contract employees and therefore unable to receive any veterans' benefits. Those benefits would include hospitalization, cash bonuses, soldiers' pensions, and flags on their coffins, as well as the victory medals promised them in France. Egan lobbied Congress for years, until finally, in 1977, Congress passed legislation acknowledging the military service of the Signal Corps switchboard operators. Sponsored by Senator Barry Goldwater, the law retroactively acknowledged the military service of the Women's Air Force service pilots of World War II and, quote, the service of any person in any other similarly situated group, the members of which rendered service to the armed forces of the United States in a capacity considered civilian employment or contractual service at the time such service was rendered. In 1979, the women of the Signal Corps were granted veteran status. By then, 
only 33 signal operators were still alive. Each of them received her honorable discharge papers in a ceremony at her home. In, in January of this year, the women were recognized with the Hello Girls Congressional Gold Medal. Banker, who died in 1960 of cancer, said the following about the Hello Girls. If you were to ask every girl in my party about her hardships, I know she would answer that she had none worth mentioning and that her work overseas helped her in every way and made her a bigger person than she was before. When I first started this podcast, I figured it would be extremely challenging to balance it with my other responsibilities, and it turns out I was right. But I pursued it anyway because I was so passionate about this idea that I've had since 2016. I love history, and I've loved discovering and sharing it with you. I'm going to see if posting shorter monthly episodes will leave more time for the rest of my life. If you've enjoyed American Epistles or discovered something in an episode that was meaningful to you, please share it in a review on Apple Podcasts. American Epistles is also available on Himalaya, which a friend and listener recently told me about, as well as Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. Show notes are at AmericanEpistles.com, and please check the Pinterest page for images related to today's episode. The music is performed by Pretlow Stevenson IV. Thank you very much for listening.